Bibles open and we've prayed, uh, so uh, we'll uh, go right in. And uh, we need to see this morning that really we'd have just one application. Uh, it's there for us in verse 9 of Isaiah 40, one application, and that is to behold our God. That's it. That's our one application. But uh, what does it mean to behold our God? And how can we behold an invisible God? It sounds like I've been given an impossible task this morning, doesn't it? And we might ask, well, why is it so urgent that all of us now behold God? Well, turn to verse 27 in our reading, and we'll see why we need to do that. Verse 27, God asks, or says how people will be feeling, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from my Lord, my right is disregarded by my God? You see, this at times is part of the normal experience of God's people, feeling distant, feeling forgotten. And Isaiah is prophesying to Israel, uh, knowing how they would be feeling having been taken off to exile in Babylon, in captivity, and I can't think of anything worse. And sadly, it's almost too easy to imagine, isn't it, when we see the news coming out of Ukraine, uh, women having to flee the country or travel through a war-torn country um, with children in tow, having said goodbye to brothers and, and fathers and husbands as they've gone off to fight an impossible enemy. It's, it's almost too shocking to imagine, isn't it? And I can't imagine how they would be feeling, Israel would be feeling, having been taken off into Babylon, the bottom having fallen out of their world. And I suppose the Christian experience is like when you might feel like God has forgotten you. Or maybe somehow the gospel doesn't apply to you, or that you're just feeling really spiritually dry, really distant, really far off. And, you know, God comes to Israel and he says, no, it's not that God has forgotten Israel, but Israel has forgotten God. That's why they're feeling like that. And that's why it's so important that they and we behold our God. You see, we mustn't forget him. He hasn't forgotten us. We mustn't forget him. We need to see him and know him. And that's how we'll find the message of real comfort that is part of this message as we dive into this wonderful part of the book. So come back with me to the beginning of verse 1 to see point number 1, real hope is found in God. So God speaks comfort, comfort. And this is no mere comfort blanket. This is no uh, sort of therapeutic washed up mumbo jumbo of uh, uh, sort of an overused platitude. This is no wet comfort blanket. No, this is real words of real comfort to real people from the promise-keeping God. Have a look. Comfort my people, says your God. And that little phrase, my people, your God, is shorthand for the covenant promise that God has made to his people all through the Bible. You might remember it. They will be my people and I will be their God. You see, God hasn't forgotten them in their pain, in their struggle, in their trial, in their mess, in their frustration, in their sadness. He hasn't forgotten. He's faithful to his covenant, to his promise, to his word 
always. And the faithful guy has a message to Jerusalem. Do you notice? Speak tenderly to her. Literally, speak to the heart. And we might remember back in Isaiah 6, that little passage that we briefly looked at earlier, the message of judgment was to come to harden people's hearts because of their sin, Isaiah 6 verse 10. But now God's message of comfort is to come straight to their heart, to penetrate their heart and to give new life to those hard hearts. And the, and the picture of comfort here is that new life. It's a, it's a fresh start. And what does that fresh start look like? Three things, verse two, each beginning with that. The fresh start is that hostility with God is forgotten, forgiven, forever. Do we see that? Because hostility is forgotten. Why? Because warfare is ended. Peace with God, relationship restored. A hostility is forgiven. Why? Because iniquity is pardoned. God will not hold their sins against them. They have been forgiven. And third, hostility is over. It's forever. Because sin has been paid for. She, that's Israel, has received double for all her sins. And the picture here is of a, of a mirror image, of a double, of a match, of a like for like. They sinned, they deserve judgment, but God is going to equally match that with his grace, perfectly pay their debt in full. So sin is forgotten, forgiven forever. It's a fresh start for God's people. And how will they get this fresh start? Verse three, as God himself comes to the rescue. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The wilderness in uh, the biblical picture is the place of judgment. So think Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, mankind in Adam and Eve sinned. They were sent out of the paradise place into the wilderness. The wilderness is the place of judgment. And for Babylon, that place is the place of exile, banished from God, from God and from all things good. But God, you see, is going to come for them, to them, in the wilderness. God is come, going to come to them even in their sin and in their iniquity, in their despair, in their hopelessness. You see, God doesn't wait until they've sorted themselves out, does he? God doesn't wait until they're, they're good enough. No, God comes to them in their mess and in their pain. And it's like that with us, isn't it, friends? You know, God doesn't wait until we've got it all together before we somehow earn forgiveness. No, 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 we don't need to wait until we're good enough before we feel like we can sh darken the doors of a church again. No, 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 God doesn't wait until we're good enough before we can start being useful and serve his kingdom. No, God comes to us and finds us in our brokenness, in our weakness, in our iniquity, in our pain. God is gonna come to them, for them, in their mess, to lead them out of it. It's great good news, isn't it? And there's going to be tectonic change as this new world shifts. Do you notice? Every valley lifted up, every mountain made low. This is a new start for new people with new hearts, a new beginning, a renewed relationship with God. 
And at this time of salvation, verse 5, all flesh, all people will see his glory. Verse 5, all flesh will see his glory. And seeing God's glory is not how you watch TV. How do you watch TV? Uh, you, you sort of sit on the couch and you get the remote, or maybe it's on your phone or, or even your watch, or maybe you just speak. And, and, and you're over here on the couch, lying back, and the TV is over there, and, and you're just passive spectators, you're watching it. Now, seeing God's glory is not like how Seth watches TV. Seeing God's glory is like how Isaiah experiences God's glory in chapter 6. And, and how did Isaiah experience God's glory? He had this vision, and the vision was, was of the temple and the foundations shaking. It was going on all around him. And he heard the rumble of the thunder as God's glory filled the temple, and he was surrounded by smoke. If we had some smoke machines... Uh, that would really just uh, set the illustration off, wouldn't, wouldn't it? But that's what it means. To see God's glory is to experience it in the full orbed experience, 3D surround sound. That's how they will experience God's glory, but not like how Isaiah experienced it in chapter 6. And when he did so, he fell down and cried out, woe is me. But they will experience this feeling of God's glory as the surrounding experience of comfort. What a change. What a shift. But then the question, how will they experience this newness and this new experience of the glory of God? Answer, they will hear God's word. Look at verse 5, the end of verse 5. All flesh will see his glory because the mouth of the Lord has spoken or that sentence could begin when they will see God's glory when God speaks and this is an important relationship that we need to understand this morning this relationship between seeing and hearing and I know that there are some doctors in the room so we're not talking anatomically I know that you see with your eyes and hear with your ears but spiritually speaking seeing and hearing are the same thing. So again, in Isaiah 6, what is the message? But they will be blind and deaf. They will not be able to see nor hear. Uh, seeing is hearing. And seeing God's glory and hearing God's word is a theme found elsewhere in the Bible, isn't it? So we might remember Moses on the mountain, Exodus 33. Moses asks God, uh, uh, he says, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. And how does God respond? I will proclaim to you my name. Moses will hear God's word. Moses asks to see God's glory. God speaks his word. And this is uh, the message uh, that we need to understand this morning. You see, as uh, God's people are going to experience that real comfort this renewed relationship, this fresh start, how will this come? It is as they hear God's word. And this message from God promises a future, a bright future, when God himself will come to his people to rescue them. And you know, the New Testament writers tell us that this future has now come in Jesus. Now turn with me to Mark chapter 1. In your church Bibles, it's page 785. Mark chapter 1 and verse 2. 
It's in Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, he's, uh, Mark, the narrator, is talking about and introducing us to John the Baptist standing on the banks of the Jordan River in the wilderness, and he's preaching. And Mark says that John is that voice in the wilderness crying out, prepare the way of the Lord as he prepares the way for Jesus. If we see verse 4, John was preaching a message of forgiveness of sins. Sins will be forgiven. Jesus' coming was the fulfillment of Isaiah. Jesus appeared in the wilderness, two people in their sin, in their struggle, in their pain, in their state of spiritual exile. He came to them, he comes to us while we were still sinners. And he is the one who proclaims to us comfort because he has come to forgive our sins and give us fresh starts. And as John, different John, John the gospel writer writes, John chapter one, verse 14, don't turn to it. But John says, uh, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That, that is amazing, isn't it? As John, who spent time with Jesus in first century Israel, uh, saw Jesus, he was looking at God himself, full of glory. John saw God's glory with his eyes. And if you and I had been there in Jerusalem in the first century, we might have seen Jesus face to face as well. Isn't that amazing? But the question is now, how do we see God's glory? We know that Jesus is in heaven. So how do we see Jesus's glory? Answer, in his words. Come with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and again in the church Bibles, that's page 907, 907. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. The Apostle Paul tells us that with unveiled faces, so again, the new creation will be a place of no masks, with unveiled faces, we behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed. Uh, we can behold Jesus now. But again, the question, well, how do we behold Jesus? We know, Sam, that Jesus is in heaven. How do we behold him? We'll come down the page slightly, chapter 4, verse 4. It's in the gospel that we see the glory of Christ. Or verse 6, through the gospel, we have the knowledge of the glory of God in our hearts. We see the face of Jesus Christ. We behold his glory in the gospel. That's how we behold, that's how we see Jesus now in the gospel. Well, why is that? Well, the gospel is the good news of Jesus. The gospel tells us that the Lord himself, Jesus has come to us from heaven. He died on the cross. His life was that double. We had a debt of sin. He perfectly matched that with his own life and by his grace. So through Jesus, all sin is forgotten, forgiven forever. We behold Jesus in the gospel when we see that he was risen from the dead. He's guaranteed that we will have new life, a fresh start, and that because of him, we will see Jesus in the new creation and we will see him face to face. And it's through this gospel, as we behold Jesus in the gospel, through the gospel, we have this comfort that God is proclaiming. Not a mere comfort blanket, not just a promise in sort of, oh, I hope you'll be all right, 
No, real comfort, because it's grounded in the real words of the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, real events grounded in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing that we have real comfort from God? And we find that comfort as we know Jesus in and through his gospel. We'll come back to this at the end, but for now, let's journey back to Isaiah chapter 40, where we're faced with a choice. Isaiah 40, pay, uh, chapter 40, verse 6, we're faced with a choice, way A or way B. Which way are you going to go? Will you put your hope and your comfort in God, in his word, or in someone or something else? Verse 6, again, a voice cries, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. So we have a picture of grass, and this grass is not like my dusty backyard. No, this grass is like a meadow, and it covers all the earth. And the picture here is of the grass that represents the people of the earth all around the world. And the flowers, they represent the very best of human achievement, the very best of humanity. This might be technological prowess, or the glory of science, or education, or medicine, or family, or, or history, the flower in the field. Only come to verse 7, the grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are but grass. And you'll remember, won't you, a couple of years ago, those extreme wildfires, the, those bushfires, just sweeping through the bush, sweeping through the bush, the, the grass just burning up before the fire even reached it. You know, it's, it's hopeless, isn't it? It can't stand up. It's, it's gone. It's smoke. It's vapor. And God says, you know, just like trusting in grass in a bushfire is like trusting even in the very best of humanity or anything else that humanity can offer, anything else. So we need to ask, what are we trusting in for comfort in this life? Is it health, vaccines, property, pensions? What are we trusting in for comfort? What do you look forward to in the future? What are you trusting in to get you through life now? Psychology, mindfulness, Therapies? We need to ask, what do, what do we want for our children? What do you think will set our children up best? Is it an education, tax-free trust fund, piano lessons? What do we think is best for them? What will best comfort them? What do we do that might reveal where we go to for comfort in this life and the next? Because we need to see that like grass, even like the flower of the field, like the very best of what humanity can offer, it will just shrivel up, it will fade, it will die. Verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And since the word of God will stand forever, it will never let us down. Real comfort in troubled times will be found in and only found in building our lives upon God's word as we see him in the gospel. And therefore, the obvious conclusion for us is verse 9. It's to get up high and proclaim the good news. 
get up high, up on a mountain. I don't know, where is the nearest mountain to here? You'd have to go a long way. Well, tell you what, our squad, get up on top of the church building and proclaim the good news. This is the good news, that God is coming. And when we behold God, what is it that we're doing? Well, really, we're, we're seeing and we're saying that God is great and God is good. Have a look at verse 10. God is great, verse 10. God is good, verse 11. God is great, verse 10. You see, God is mighty, The Lord is mighty. His arm, his strong arm rules. His reward, his recompense, that is his rescued people, are with him. Don't doubt God. He is very, very great. Second, verse 11, God is very, very good. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. If you put your trust in God's word, you will be safe. That's an important message, isn't it, for, for Judah you know, that tiny little nation surrounded by all those enemies. It's a word to them, isn't it? You know, if you, if you just trust God, you will be safe. And they might be saying, but how? I need real tangible help. God, do you not know? I've got a real life to lead. Surely I, I can just go to Egypt for help. They will be able to help. Send up some cavalry and some horsemen and some real artillery muscle. They'll give me what I really need right now. God says, no, just trust me, trust my word. And it's a word to us, isn't it? In all our trials, what are you surrounded by? We really can take God at his word and trust him. And, you know, knowing that God is great and God is good, really those are the things, that, dare I say, the only two things that we really need to know in the trial It's really elementary stuff, isn't it? It's first grade. It's kindergarten stuff. God is great and God is good. It's what you teach your children. What do they need to know? God is great. God is good. When you're in real trial, what do we need to know? God is great. God is good. And we need to hold those together. He's not just great but doesn't care. No, he's great and good. And he's not just good but can't do anything about it. No, he's great. And he acts for our very good and for our very best. God is great and God is good. And really the rest of the chapter expands on that. So our our second main point, God is great, verses 12 to 24. We're going to skip over these quite briefly, but we're going to sing of them in a minute, which is fantastic. I'd encourage you to read the rest of the chapter tomorrow over breakfast. But this, have a look, this is the God that we can put our trust in. Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. Can you just imagine that? You gaze out over the sea at Maroubra Beach, the Pacific Ocean, just held in the little hollow of his hand. Well, God uses that hand and the strength of his might to save and protect you in your time of trouble. Isn't that wonderful? Or verse 17 all the nations are as but nothing before him, less than nothing, emptiness. Remember Judah, surrounded by the nations, their trials, their trouble. And God says, however great the threat, God is greater. Again, we need to ask, what are you experiencing that really is pulling you away from living wholeheartedly for God now? What is it, that, that threat, that temptation, that trial? Well, trust God. God is greater than all your surroundings. And second, God is good, verses 25 to 31. Again, that question, 
To whom can we compare God? Lift up your eyes, God says. Lift up your eyes high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number. Well, the hosts here are the stars. And you might like to do that when uh, we next have a clear night, go outside or drive out to the bush somewhere. And just look up and, and count the stars. Who made these, the stars? God, just by speaking. Isn't God great? But how does God use his greatness? He calls each one of them by name, verse 26. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. And you know, I'm no astronomer. Any astronomers here? No, it's pretty rare these days, isn't it? I'm no astronomer. But I can't tell one star from another, can you? I mean, do you know if you've seen the same star twice? I don't know. I can't tell the difference. God can. God has a name for every single star. Every star, they look identical. Everyone matters to God. Isn't that amazing? He even shepherds the stars. And the point is that they're just, they're all alike. They're great, but they're all alike. You matter to God. That's the point. God can shepherd the stars. And there are so many of them. And he even knows them. Well, God knows you and God can shepherd you. And in the comfort and pain of Israel's exile, God is with them and continues to shepherd them. Verse 11 is still true. Yes, they are weak. He is with them. He's carrying them. He's got them, you see. When I, uh, a few years ago, a few of you uh, know that I, I had a seizure. It was quite traumatic at the time. Um, but my wife was very comforting. She said, just remember, Sam, in this, God's got you. And you know, whatever your trial, whatever your pain, whatever your struggle, your experience might be like that of Israel. Where is God? God's forgotten me. God's forgotten his promise. God's promise doesn't apply to me. I've done something that renders me unusable. No, God's got you. Not one of them is missing. How good is our God? And this is the God we behold in the gospel. This is the Lord Jesus. And therefore we come back to our application, which should be so obvious by now. It is to behold our God. God has not forgotten them. They have forgotten God. What do they need to do? Behold him. How do we do that? Now you should all, all know that. How do we behold an invisible God? We're going to do, try a bit of audience participation now. How do we behold an invisible God? Answer. Hearing his word. That's right. We read our Bibles. We look at the gospel. We trust it. That's right. We need to open our Bibles. That's where the comfort is. Real sin is forgotten forgiven forever. Jesus died. His life was a double, a perfect match to give us the grace that we need. His coming is God himself coming. He gives us real hope, a real promise of a new heart and a fresh start. We see real comfort in the gospel. And only the gospel, you see, can provide that real comfort in times of trial and trouble. And this is how it works. You see, when I open my Bible and as I remember and put my trust in the gospel, I'm reminded that God is great. Jesus died on the cross. He rose again from the dead. A dead man came back from, to life. We remember that at Easter, didn't we? 
Of course, there's nothing that he cannot do. He really can give us what we need and make sure God keeps his promise to us. And as I look in the gospel, I see that God is good. Jesus loves you. He loves me. He died for you. He died for me. He died for the world, that perfect life, so that we might enjoy this comfort. And when we see and behold Jesus in his word, we see that he's the God who continues to shepherd us by his word and keep us. Not one of us will be missing. Now that, I think, is real comfort to sing about. What do you think? I think we're going to sing now. Is that right, Josh? <laughs>